Hello again and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast with me, Simon Longfellow. And me, Marcus De Silva. On episode 24 this week, banks are back in the news, eBay is out of fashion and second wave fears and the impact on markets. Also in the big investment, we take a look at government bonds. What are they? How do they work? What are the risks? And what are the investments out there you can look at? But before that, let's take a look at what's been happening this week in the markets. Marcus, what's the latest? Yeah, markets have wandered downwards this week as investors have been biting their nails worrying about a second wave of coronavirus coupled with some poor data out of Europe, which is making clear how far the virus has ravished economies already. While some positive sentiment did emerge from Fed announcements that they were to extend the availability of cheap money around the world, markets also had to consume some disappointment at slowing economic momentum in the US. So, in the US, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell had a little press conference on Wednesday and he reiterated the link between the health of the economy and the virus. He lamented that the pace of the US recovery had slowed in June as cases spiked. He pledged unwavering and continuing support, saying all of the Fed's accommodative programs, such as its extensive bond buying to keep rates low, will be kept in place until the virus was assigned to history. Included in his statement was an extension of funding lines to foreign banks, ensuring a plentiful supply of international dollars. He also added that interest rates were unlikely to be raised for a very long time. As a consequence, we saw a little jolt away from safe haven assets for a bit, with the price of gold and US treasuries, that's their government bonds, falling slightly on the news. This turned the broad US market slightly higher, although they are still trading down for the week. This was good stuff from the Fed, but European markets had sweet time to enjoy it, as earnings data filtered through, which wasn't a pretty sight. This included Lloyd's in the UK and VW in Europe, which both reported eye-watering first-half losses. Earnings for the UK Standard Charter also took a pummeling, but the notable exception was AstraZeneca, which rose on stronger-than-expected earnings on the back of heightened drug sales. With more likely unflattering data due, including Germans' GDP prints, European and UK markets are flagging a little, with the FTSE 100, the CAC 40 and the DAX all down. In Asia, markets took some relief by Fed promises of cheap money, as this prevents any nasty exchange rate moves with Asian currencies, but it was mixed with concerns on the slowing pace of US growth and what the knock-on effect means for Asian markets that are closely linked on trade. Cases in particular are surging, unfortunately, in Indonesia and the Philippines, with Australia, India, Vietnam and North Korea all on high alert. So let's move on and take a look at some of the headlines about companies this week. Spanish bank Santander this week announced their first loss in their 163-year history after filing a negative 11.1 billion euro second quarter. But not all of that was due to paying Ant and Dec to do their advertising in the UK, much of it was in fact related to some goodwill that was removed from the company's balance sheet. It had been sitting there since the 2000s when it bought UK building societies like Abbey National, Alliance and Leicester and Bradford and Bingley. 
another €2 billion Euros was removed for tax that Santander said it was unlikely to recover. Shares in the bank are down 41% so far this year. Also this week, Barclays Bank added £1.6 billion to its reserves for the second quarter, making the provision for loans that it has made where it expects not to be paid back. This follows another £2.2 billion provision in the first quarter of 2020. This charge means that profits fell over 90% for the period. Shares dropped 4.5% on Wednesday when the news was announced, meaning the overall drop for the year is almost 40%. And finally in this section, online marketplace Shopify has overtaken eBay as both buyers and sellers have flocked to its platform this year. Revenues are up 100% over the last year as purchases on its website doubled in the three months to the end of June. And this helped the platform beat eBay for the first time. Amy Shapiro, the chief financial officer for Shopify, said the results were brought about by the sudden shift from offline to online shopping, especially for food, beverages and tobacco. Shopify allows companies of all sizes to open an online store and then takes a cut of sales through the platform. New store growth was up 71% during the period, with big names like Molson Coors the Brewer joining the platform. Okay, let's get into the big investment. And over the next few weeks, we're going to have a look at bonds a little bit. This is the other major asset class, as well as equities, as well as company shares. Um, it's also Bonds also referred to as fixed income, in case you see that around. And just as a reminder, all bonds are just debt that an institution, such as a government or a company, will issue in order to help fund their endeavours. An investor will then therefore lend them some money for a predetermined period of time, 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it is on the bond, for a fixed rate of interest, which is known as a coupon, say 1, 1 or 2%, something like that, hence the whole fixed income name. So you make money by receiving mainly this stream of income, um, but there is also the potential for a capital return because the price that you pay for that bond can change. You know, supply and demand still exist. These are traded in the market and, and demand will change depending on how much people want this particular safe asset. So that means that you won't really see coupons heard. What you'll see is yields because yield take, yields take into account the price of the bonds as well, the price in which you're buying in to get that income stream, to get that coupon. So if the price of bonds is going down, then yields are going up because you're paying less for that same income stream and vice versa. Now, the, the rate that's applied to the bond in the first place is determined by a number of factors, but the big thing within bonds is interest rates and inflation because these change the relative attractiveness um, of, those particular, of those particular income streams of, of the bond. Um, other stuff as well, like the maturity of the bond, you can imagine if you're lending someone money for a longer period of time, then uh, there's a greater rate, they won't, they won't, there's a greater chance they won't be there um, in, in, say, 20 years, so, so you get compensated more for that. But also credit ratings as well. Um, just the same as if you or I were applying for a mortgage and we will get assessed for our ability to repay the debt that we're borrowing, 
institutions are assessed in the same way by ratings agencies, people like Standard and Poor. Um, and um, what they do is, is assign a rating that puts these institutions into one of two camps. The safer end is known as investment grade and the riskier end is known as high yield. And that's important because you might see those names banded around on, on products, on bond fund products. Um, this week, though, we're going to have a look at government bonds. Now, government bonds are broadly safer than corporate bonds, also known as credit, which we'll talk about next week. And they also have some weird names, government bonds. I mean, in the UK, they're called gilts or gilt-edged securities. In the US, they're called treasuries. In Germany, they're called bunds. Um, so you might, that's where these sorts of names, uh, what they mean. Um, and just to be clear, the case is not that these represent great value right now. They don't. We're, we're at the end of a 35-year um, winning streak, really, in bonds. And I'll explain that in a bit. But it's more that they are, it's a it's the ballast effect of of a, of of really the safest risk asset. So, assets that are you know you're taking some element of risk in order to gain a return. These are on the safest end of those, and and really they 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 are usually allocated to by professionals as a ballast to other more riskier assets that they might have in their portfolio. And if you're worrying about a second wave of COVID, this is part of the reasons why, you know, we thought we would talk about some of the safer assets that are out there, um, because these these might might ballast some some volatility in the portfolio um, uh, if, if, you know, markets, you know, become more volatile and, and then they go downwards. But that, that, that it does come with some risks, because as I say, these don't represent great value, but we'll, we'll get into that. Okay, so can you break down why investors might go for government bonds? So we mentioned that they are um, the safest in terms of the risk assets that you can you can possibly go for, because you know a developed world government like the U.S. government, the U.K. government is very unlikely to default on its bonds. In fact, the short the shortest rate. U.S. government bond that you can buy is, is often called the is called the risk-free rate. It's used to to calculate how much return you should get in other assets. So these are seen as pretty safe, um, and and that's why they're used as a way to 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 adjust downwards the risks you might be taking in your, in your broader portfolio and in other riskier assets. But we're not talking about any country here. Um, you need to be aware of that. We are talking about developed market, um, you know. Uh, country bonds like gilts and treasuries and bonds etc um, emerging market government bonds are, are are not included in this very safe sort of category um, and a good example of that was back in 2001 Argentina defaulted on some of its bonds and some were owned by this by a hedge fund called Elliott Capital which is run by a renowned hedgy a guy called Paul Singer quite aggressive and he pursued them relentlessly for 15 years and um, one remarkable story was in 2012 when one of Argentina's Navy's tall ships was moored in Ghana and he had it impounded in order to try and recuperate some of the losses, which caused an international outcry and, um, you know, a lot of headlines around unscrupulous financiers, which, um, you know, was, it juries out on whether or not that was wise. Um, so, you know, adding bonds to equity investments, um, uh, it, it can, can be a way of, of reducing some of those risks. It's, it's a diversifier. Uh, bonds do behave um, in some respects differently to equities. 
and they definitely fared much better in the crisis than equities. Now, unfortunately, I know it sounds odd, but that's kind of where some of the benefits really end because there are risks in this and we must talk about those. Um, uh, income or capital is not really much of a feature here because bond yields are so low. They've just been falling and falling and falling for 35 years. And it's actually meant if you've been invested in bonds over the past 35 years, you've made some stinging, brilliant returns relative to the risk you're taking. But now, investing in them now, that is something that you should really not expect. It's unlikely that yields are going to go much lower. And with them being so small, um, you know, chances of capital return, income return, that there's not much chance out there. Hang on a minute. How is a negative yield even possible? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I suppose it's a baffling thing. But as I said, yield is a, is a function of price. And if there's an, an awful lot of demand, then the price goes up and the extra that you've, you've paid, that extra money that you've paid in that price of the bond is not compensated by, by the coupon over over the life of that bond so that's how you end up with a, a negative rate situation and the reason for this is I, I mentioned before that interest rates and inflation are enormously important so the longer term reasons are that since the 1980s inflation and interest rates have just fallen and fallen and fallen so we've seen UK and US 10-year government bonds go from 14-15% in the early 80s down to below 1% today which is quite remarkable but also, we've had extraordinary buyers in the market, and that's central banks. You know, two crises now have led to extraordinary levels of buying from central banks who have bought bonds to push up, you know, to support their prices, to, to keep down yields so that, that borrowing costs for institutions is low. It's cheap and they can lend and spend. Um, and a negative yield effectively is a symptom of, of all of this buying and then add to that a flight to safety when you when you get crises. Um, but the risk, and, and it's important, so, you know, there's the safety aspect there, really. There's not much of a return um, uh, from from income or likely capital is, is, is likely. I mean, who knows? They could go lower. Um, and that does present some risks because if, if, if bonds, if, COVID is, is assigned to history, as we, we hope. If vaccines come into play, uh, if, if government, you know, if central banks stop, stop buying um, and, and markets take a much you know, more risk-on approach, they suddenly want to take more risk as things are looking better, then, then you run the risk that the bonds, um, in government bonds start getting dumped and those prices will fall. So there are, there are risks there, but, it, but again, it, it, they're smaller. The volatility is much lower um, and, and this is really around, it's around ballast in your portfolio. So how would you sort of summarise the case for bonds then? So it's, you know, near-term risk exists in the market. So a potential ballast and diversifier against other riskier assets. But forget any meaningful return um, is, is really the case here. Okay, Simon, you've been having a look at some examples. What have you found? Okay, thanks, Marcus. Well, this week I start with a warning. If you're using a search engine to find funds that invest in government bonds, you're almost certain to come across some sites with claims like you'll get strong and stable returns or investment opportunities with great returns. Be wary. These are actually marketing companies who are looking to capture your data and pass it to investment providers. 
They're doing all of this without asking you to agree to any kind of statement that protects the use of your personal information. They're not regulated by the Financial or uh, Conduct Authority. And often the people you who are getting your end data aren't regulated either. Also, your investments, should you make any, are not covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. And despite the suggestions that your investment will be safe or secure and that you might be getting what they're saying is a great savings rate, you're not. You will be looking at investment products where the money is at risk of going down as well as going up. It's also likely that you'll be tied in to that investment too for a period. Uh, modesty prevents me from naming and shaming all of these people. Um, and to be honest, I'm surprised that these kinds of scams are allowed to exist. But I will call out one, which was bestfixedratebonds.com. They're currently using paid-for advertising on Google. And when you attempt to contact them by email, it gets bounced back. The phone number that they've given on the website is not valid. And the business is uh, registered to a residential address in a less than salubrious part of North London. Needless to say, we've reported the ads to Google. In short, stay away and instead seek out the kinds of names we've talked about before on this programme. Okay, who are the names? Well, let's start with a respected and well-known investment company that isn't being run out of a garage, and that's M&G and their Global Government Bond Fund. It was launched back in 1999, and its aim is to provide a return after charges better than the returns provided by the Investment Association's Global Bonds sector, so a group of other funds Uh, in this same space. It does that by investing in investment-grade bonds issued by or guaranteed by governments and government-related institutions from anywhere in the world. Now, one thing I did find interesting about this uh, investment is that, and you can take your own view here, is that when you look at it in a bit more detail, you can see that it will only actually invest 70% of its money in government bonds. The other 30% can go into high-yield bonds, uh, asset-backed securities, don't ask, but other kinds of securities, uh, other funds, including some of its own funds, and cash. Uh, But in terms of where of the world it invests, Currently, about 18% of the portfolio is in US government bonds and then 10% in Japan as the second biggest country allocation. After that, follow the Philippines, Germany, Hungary and a host of others before you get to the UK, which is only about 2.5% of the portfolio. This does uh, speak to a wider point that most of the funds investing in bonds tend to be a mix of both corporate and and government bonds. Uh, These are often called strategic bond funds, subject of another programme, I'm sure, Um, but they allow investors to move between the sort of private uh, debt sector and the public debt sector according to what the manager feels is best. And are there any other big names? Uh, Yes, and you don't have to buy an actively managed fund like the M&G one we've just uh, been talking about. There are exchange-traded or tracker funds that also invest in government debt. 
debt, should I say. Uh, one example comes from the BlackRock stable, and it's the iShares UK Gilts ETF. It's quite big at £1.76 billion in size, and like most ETFs, it has low charges. This one is at 0.07% a year. It aims to track the performance of an index composed of sterling denominated, so UK pounds denominated, uh, UK government bonds. The other big ETF provider, Vanguard, they have four tracker funds that cover government debt. Uh, one is a UK one, another is focused on the US, and then there's one in the Eurozone. And then finally, there's an emerging markets one, the Vanguard US Dollar Emerging Markets ETF. Uh, it's a newish fund, it's uh, launched in 2016. Uh, it has slightly higher charges than the UK, US, European ones at 0.25% a year. And it has a staggering 1,097 individual bonds in the portfolio, meaning it's pretty well diversified. Top holdings are in Russia, Qatar, Saudi, Mexico and Argentina. So it's probably a bit better suited to those investors with a sort of more adventurous side and probably a higher tolerance for taking risks okay thanks very much uh just as a little reminder again we are not aware of your personal circumstances so please don't use this as an inducement to to buy anything this is just meant as examples as we talk about government bonds as a strategy that's all folks for this week don't forget to subscribe through your chosen podcast channel and we hope to see you again next week goodbye